As I mentioned to you earlier, this is a special day, and we don't really just take one day during the year to deal with missions. In fact, we, uh, we've dealt with missions a number of times in a particularly obvious way. But the truth is that we deal with missions every Lord's Day. You might not see it that way, and I might honestly not even be thinking about it myself. But everything the church does should be focused on preparation for missions, really for evangelism in whatever setting the Lord allows and provides. Our lives are to be about winning the lost. That's who we are as the New Testament church. That's the design, that's God's design, that men would be won by men. As I mentioned earlier from Romans 1.17, righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. And that's not man's righteousness, that's Christ's righteousness imputed, that God, by grace, through faith, would establish righteousness in those who would believe in the gospel. But with a false theology, it's all a ruse. It's all a game. It's all a man-made effort to build one's spiritual resume, to climb one's way to heaven by works. And you'll find plenty of folks who will say, we don't believe in salvation by works, but if you look at what they do, that's exactly what it is. Everything under the sun to win the lost by the flesh, doing whatever must be done to get them in the doors. There's no hint in the New Testament of this design to get people to church to win them to Christ. The purpose, if you were to just do a cursory reading of the book of Ephesians, of gathering on Sunday mornings is to be equipped for evangelism. And because so many churches are not devoted to equipping the saints on Sunday morning, evangelism is not taking place outside the walls of the church, much less inside the walls of the church, because it's the same shallow, repeated message week after week after week. And this is not what Jesus has called us to. He's not called us to a shallow effort to get people to make decisions, to get people to ask Jesus into their heart. It's not in the Bible. It's just not there. Try as you may, you will not find anything that remotely looks like that. People typically turn to Revelation chapter 3 and said that Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who opens the door, I will come in and sup with him. He's talking to the church. It's not evangelistic. He's not talking to unbelievers. So we look at the text of Scripture this morning that is commonly, and, and gladly so, and rightly so, commonly used by churches to help them understand missions, I think you'll see a much, much different message. I'm convinced you will, because the message is much different from what I just described to you. Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. If you have your Bible, please open it, and you can read silently along as I read aloud. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John MacArthur has well said, If a Christian understands all the rest of the Gospel of Matthew but fails to understand this closing passage, he has missed the point of the entire book. This passage is the climax and major focal point not only of this Gospel but of the entire New Testament. It is not an exaggeration to say that in its broadest sense, it is the focal point of all Scripture, Old Testament as well as New this central passage of Scripture pertains to the central mission of the people of God, a mission that tragically many Christians do not understand or are unwilling to fulfill. It seems obvious that some Christians think little about their mission in this world except in regard to their own personal needs. They attend services and meetings when it is convenient, take what they feel like taking, and have little concern for anything else. They're involved in the church only to the extent that it serves their own desires. It escapes both their understanding and their concern that the Lord has given His church a supreme mission and that He calls every believer to be an instrument in fulfilling that mission. Jesus came into the world to manifest God's glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. 
as the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Just as their Lord, Jesus Christ, came into the world with the supreme purpose of glorifying his Father, so those who belong to Christ have the same purpose. We are to praise, honor, and glorify our God in every dimension of life. So many emphases are thoroughly biblical and should characterize every body of believers, but neither separately nor together do they represent the central purpose and mission of the church in the world. The supreme purpose and motive of every individual believer and every body of believers is to glorify God. The mission that flows out of our loving fellowship, our spiritual growth, and our praise is that of being God's faithful and obedient instruments in His divine plan to redeem the world. That plan began in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, but it did not go into effect until Adam chose to sin, fell from fellowship with God, and was spiritually separated from Him. Since that fateful day in the Garden of Eden, fallen, natural man has been trying to hide from God, and God has been redeeming men back to himself. From that first time of sin, it has always been God who solely out of his own gracious love has taken the initiative to restore men to righteousness. God has always taken the initiative for man's salvation and restoration from his first call to Adam, where are you, to his last call in Revelation, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. It is true that so commonly the church has found itself to be a haven for people to meet personal needs. And that's it. Thus, you have massive deceit across our land with regard to what real evangelism is, what it looks like, how it's done, how we are to participate in it. Your bulletin there reads, because of the authority and presence of Jesus Christ, we are to disciple, baptize, and teach the nations to obey his every command. That's the impetus of our passage this morning. Point number one, discipleship demonstrated in obedience and worship. We'll see discipleship demonstrated in obedience and worship. The mission of the church is the glory of God in salvation of lost souls. If this is not what we are about, then we are not a faithful New Testament local church. Ezekiel 33:11 says say to them as I live declares the Lord God I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather the wicked turn from his way and live turn back turn back from your evil ways why then will you die O house of Israel God as we have pointed out time and time again has always not only in the New Testament but in the in the Old Testament he has always been a God of grace appealing to the lost 1 Timothy 2, verse 3 says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the heart of a God who loves people. 2 Peter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but, his, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him might not perish but have eternal life. All who believe receive eternal life. Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Do we act like that as a church? Verse 17 goes on to say, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
This is the bad news, and it is alarming, and it is serious. The wrath of God, the anger of God, the righteous hatred of God is poured out against the wicked. Psalm 5.5 tells us that God pours his wrath out upon the boastful and that he hates them. It's a righteous hatred. Again, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. This is why we say that God has written his existence on all men's hearts. Every man knows God exists. There are no atheists. You say, I know a guy who's pretty convincing. He says he doesn't believe in God. He's lying. This passage tells us that God has written his existence on man's heart. He goes on to say, he's made it, God has made it evident within them or to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Thus, we have the theory of evolution, which is simply an attempt to do away with the reality that man knows that God exists. He simply doesn't want to be accountable to him. And then, not too many years ago, someone came up with the idea of theistic evolution. God kind of got the ball rolling and just kind of let it roll, and evolution came as a result of that, and that defies Scripture as well. It salves the conscience. It makes man no longer accountable to God. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 2 tells us that we are to be an aroma of Christ unto God. We are to be an aroma of Christ unto God among those who are perishing and among those who are being saved. You don't know who God's going to save. You don't determine who gets saved. God does that. But we are to be an aroma to both parties. We are by no means to scan the crowd and say, I, I think that guy's savable, but that guy, that guy, you know, he's a little too far gone. Uh, I would say he is of a debased mind. He's past the point of no return. You don't know that. You don't know that. Someone might have said that about you or me. Someone could easily have said that about me. People certainly would have said that about Paul. But we're to be an aroma of Christ unto God in a figurative sense to smell like Christ in our conduct, in our attitudes. That people would be drawn to Christ because of our humility, because of our likeness to the image of Jesus Christ, our willingness to stand strong for truth, but to express it with grace and love. Romans 10, verse 11 says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Do you believe that? It's true. It's true. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, ultimately. That's the idea. He'll go to heaven. Verse 16 and 17 in our text this morning say, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Again, point number one, discipleship demonstrated in obedience and worship. In terms of obedience, Matthew 26, verse 31 says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Remember this? You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is a prophecy on Jesus' part about his own being struck down, that his disciples would abandon him, and that in the end they would meet in Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. We often think of Peter, don't we, when we think about what happened here? They all said that. Then in chapter 28, verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples, the angel says to the two Marys, Tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Imagine the joy. He was dead. He had ceased to breathe. 
three days. And now he's walking. And they see him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. And there they will see me. Neither these or any other text tells us exactly when or exactly where he told them to arrive in Galilee. But verse 16 tells us that they proceeded to the location he designated. That's obedience. As a willingness to remember what the Savior commanded and to follow up with it. It's collective obedience. None of these men had an attitude of me and Jesus. It was a unanimous consensus to show their devotion to the risen Savior by obeying His command together. And this is what proved them to be disciples, this willingness to obey and to obey together. John 8, 31 says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, If you continue in My word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. He's saying to people, if you obey, you prove yourself to be a disciple. Those who don't obey, but they've, you know, whatever, they've made some profession of faith, that's not salvation. That's modern, Western, false theology. I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, well, you know, whether or not he's a Christian is between him and the Lord. And I was there when he made his decision and he was sincere. And again, it's an idea that's not in the Bible, but it sounds good. And people cling to it. Instead of clinging to this reality, let me read it again. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Pretty clear. So this is a matter of obedience. The discipleship to which Jesus calls us, this idea of making disciples of all nations, involves obedience. The idea of worship here, I told you we'd see discipleship demonstrated in obedience and in worship. We've already seen a little bit of worship. But in Mark 4.35, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Strong gale winds, and he's sleeping. They woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They really thought they were going to die. He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. I don't know why he said that, do you? I can only imagine that he only said it so that the disciples would know that he had something to do with the calming of the wind. They might have thought it was a coincidence otherwise. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Wow, we didn't know who we'd been hanging out with. Prior to Jesus' death, the disciples worshipped him in Matthew fourteen twenty-eight. But in the, the situation in the boat, that act of fear, that expression of fear is a pre-worship act. I'd even call it a worship act. In Matthew 14, 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and, be, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You certainly are God's son. This proved it. His ability to do what no one else could do, it's a real miracle. It's a legitimate changing of natural facts. We call all kinds of things miracles today. A, a biblical miracle, a, a miracle defined in Scripture, is when something impossible happens. And of course, it was at the hand of the Son of God who himself is God. See, they were willing to worship him in light of such a magnificent display of divine power. But in this instance, it is merely the sight. In the instance of our text this morning, it's merely the observation of his presence that leads them to go prostrate 
and give him the praise that he is due. Although he had told them of his death and resurrection, they had not understood. Matthew 17.22 tells us, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, this is a previous time together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. You would think they might have had some understanding of the atonement that would come from his death that was prefigured in the sacrificial system. But he tells them, he not only tells them he's going to die, he says, but I'm going to come back to life. And they're deeply grieved. These are immature believers. They're new believers. They're baby Christians, really. You say, yeah, but they were walking with the Lord. You and I walk with the Lord. And in our infancy in the faith, we're going to be deeply grieved by not having a legitimate understanding of what's really going on theologically. We need help. We need assistance. We need more mature believers. In this case, they needed Jesus. They were so unmoved by the significance of the resurrection, yet saddened over his imminent death, that they began to argue over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, is that ironic? (laughs) He's just said, I'm going to die, friends. I'll be restored to new life. Yeah, whatever. Uh, Am I going to be the greatest? Absolute phenomenal missing of the whole point. Again, in Matthew 20, verse 17, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. They should have known. He told them. He told them repeatedly. Matthew 26, 32. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Again, not just a prophecy of the uh, resurrection, but a prophecy of where we'll meet afterward. If they weren't already really discouraged in the Garden of Gethsemane, we read that he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. So if they weren't already racked in their minds enough, now they're noting that he himself is grieving. This couldn't have helped matters. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And you know how that went. They each took a nap. Matthew 26, 55. At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then Peter, the boldest of the disciples, denies him three times as the Lord said he would. And of course, he wept bitterly. And then Judas kills himself. It's a bad week. Jesus, while in prison, might have been expected to be released by the governor since the people could have chosen, according to the annual custom, one man to be freed. And instead of Jesus, they chose a criminal, Barabbas. And they demand that Jesus be crucified, that he be executed. Then Jesus is stripped, mocked with a scarlet robe, a crown of thorns, and a reed in his right hand to represent a powerless kingdom. Then he is contemptuously referred to as the king of the Jews. Then he is subjected to the cruelest form of execution, crucifixion, for hours, while Roman soldiers gamble for his clothing. For insult's sake, He suffers on the cross between two worthless thieves, both who insulted him. People passing by mocked him. The scribes and Pharisees mocked him. And then he himself cries out with a loud voice, asking God why he has forsaken him. This must have been immeasurably discouraging for the disciples. They must have thought they had wasted three years. The women who had faithfully followed him could only look on from a distance at this point. 
conceding his death, a disciple named Joseph asked for his body, prepared it, and ensured that he was laid in a new tomb. Pilate then instructed that the tomb be sealed as securely as humanly possible to prevent the disciples from stealing his body. This would have all been very, very discouraging. And then, on Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. An angel who had rolled the stone away and was sitting on it said to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He's not here. For he has risen. I mean, can you imagine that they probably didn't believe it for a moment? I don't think I would have. I've never seen anybody come back to life. Certainly they would have been befuddled by this. He's not here. For he has risen. Just as he said, come see the place where he was lying. And they did, and he wasn't there. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary in Matthew 28, verses 8 and 9, left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy. How do you manage that? Fear, great joy all at the same time. Well, that's called living in reality. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet. And they worshiped him. And you say, that must have been awesome. And it was. It's miraculous. And it's no less awesome and miraculous than what he's done for you and for me. And he, he warrants our worship. And true biblical discipleship leads to obedience and worship. It's modeled and it's emulated. Luke 24 verse 10, now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, right? Just like it would have appeared to you and me as nonsense if we hadn't seen it. And they would not believe them. They were among those at that moment who did not believe. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Obviously, at that moment, he believed. Luke 24, 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? He's still God, but he's still 100% man. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. See, true disciples worship the Savior at the very sight of him, or since his ascension, at the very thought of him. You recall from the Apostle Peter in the book we're currently studying, though we have not seen him, we love him. There's much need to mention here under point one an equally significant counterpoint, and that is that there were those who were doubtful, as your text says. Since the 11 disciples had proven to be believers at this point, if Matthew is speaking of those who are doubtful of the resurrection, he's not referring to the disciples. This experience is likely the same that Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, where he says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Among the 500, there would easily have been some who doubted that this was the Jesus who had died and had now been resurrected. The apostles knew. John 6, verse 63 says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, but the false disciples left, the pretend disciples left, those who made a profession of faith that had nothing to do with legitimate belief in the gospel went away. And why were there 11 disciples and not 12? The one who was no longer among them and his doubt led to his betrayal and ultimately his own untimely death brought on by satanic possession and worldly sorrow. His life was marked by disobedience. Not simply disobedience to the command to meet him in Galilee, but the command to deny himself, take up the cross and follow Jesus. See, that's where the rubber meets the road in Christianity, a willingness to deny self, to follow Jesus, to be discipled, to disciple others. He, like Judas, like so many, had no problem participating in the activities of discipleship, but rather than taking up the cross in the name of Christ, he turned Christ over to those who would put him on the cross. John 20, verse 19 says, So, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. This is where Thomas says he won't believe until he puts his finger in the nail holes in Jesus' hand or until he puts his own hand in Jesus' side where the spear had been run through. And so Jesus tells him to do it, and he does. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. We know from the Scripture that there are those who will constantly be looking for a sign. They can't simply believe in the Bible. They can't simply cling to what the Word of God says about Jesus. They need a drama. They need some extra-biblical manifestation of the Gospel. They need some skit. They need something that shows them what it looks like. They need a YouTube video. It was never anything like that at all that won people to Christ. It was what he accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. Blessed are those who do not see and believe. They had all seen him, and they had all believed. So when they saw him now at the appointed meeting place in Galilee, the simple sight of him led them to worship him. After all they'd been through, would it not make sense that to see him once again, they'd seen him already, they had They'd seen Andrew place his finger in the nail holes and his hand in the spear hole. They knew he was resurrected. But the message was, meet me in Galilee. So to see him at that place would have brought about great rejoicing and certainly worship of him. And that's what true disciples do. At the very thought of him, at the very reading of what the Scripture has to say about him, they are moved to worship. They obey and worship the risen Savior because he conquered death and sin on our behalf. And did you know that every single statement from Jesus' mouth after his resurrection dealt with discipleship? Every single one dealt with either an imperative toward or an explanation of discipleship. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it men of old gained approval. How? Through discipleship. That's how it works today. Discipleship demonstrated in obedience and in worship. Point number two, discipleship commanded with all authority not some authority, not some great authority, not sub-authority, all authority. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. You see in John 5, 26, Jesus' authority to execute judgment. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In Luke 12, 5, you see his authority to cast sinners into hell. But I will warn 
you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. John 17, 1 shows us Jesus' authority to give eternal life. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. You see authority to grant adoption into the family of God in John 1, 12-13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In Mark 1, verse 21, we see Jesus' authority over demons. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? I mean, that statement is indicative of a wasted life. Sitting under teaching that's not authoritative? Here's some thoughts. You know, toss it around, see what we all think. Maybe we'll do it, maybe not. That's a waste. What is this new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. We see his authority to restrain the use of his authority in John 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You see his authority over sickness in Matthew 10, verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He even had the authority to pass on his authority. He had the authority over death. Jesus had said in John 10, verse 18, No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. No one takes my life from me. Only he has the authority to take life and to give it. John 11, verse 14, So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. John eleven forty three, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. <laughs> and he proved his authority over death. And this amazing reality, this is a crux of it for you and me, he had authority to forgive sins. Sins that lead to that death over which he exhibited authority. Matthew 9, verse 6, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. He proved his authority over sins with the miracle of causing the paralytic to be healed. 1 John 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, that's what you and I need. We need to be cleansed from our unrighteousness before the, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Jesus has the authority to cleanse our unrighteousness. He has authority over all authority. Colossians 2 verse 10 says he is the head over all rule and authority. And by this Authority, he commands you to be involved in discipleship. Black and white. To resist discipleship. Specifically, the command to make disciples is to reject Jesus' authority. 
It is to deny his authority. If his command to make disciples stems from his authority to require it, then those who reject it are committed to a non-authoritative Jesus, an impotent leader with empty commands that need not be obeyed because he really has no authority. For those who resist discipleship and do not acknowledge his authority, in Luke 20, verse 1, we read, On one of the days, while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders confronted him, and they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? And he refused to answer them, because they refused to show any interest in his authority. Luke 20, verse 7, So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, biblically speaking, you see discipleship commanded with all authority. We are to make disciples of all nations. How in the world, and I mean that literally, are we going to disciple the nations if we're not involved in discipleship ourselves? The person who's not being discipled or discipling, one or the other or both, has rejected the authority of Jesus Christ to make disciples of all nations. It's a whole lot different from asking Jesus into your heart, isn't it? Point number three, discipleship defined by baptism and teaching obedience. He says, go therefore and make disciples The primary verb, the main verb in this sentence is make. Go is a participle. More literally, it would read, going, therefore, make disciples of all nations, another participle, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, another participle, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, another participle, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So all these verbs, these Participles, which is a form of a verb, modify the main static verb, which is make. Make disciples. How do you make disciples? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. By teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's how you do it. See, this is not simply this baptism, a matter of saying the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You saw me do that this morning. But that's not what Jesus is commanding here, that you say the words. It is in accordance with the Trinitarian Godhead. One God, three persons, one name. That's how Jesus says it. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Jesus is not requiring that these words be proclaimed as someone is being baptized. He is commanding that the baptism be done in accordance with each of the persons of the Trinity. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 says, There is no God but one. Three persons, each of whom are God. In Matthew 3, you see all three persons, one God. Verses 16 and 17. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is a Trinitarian moment. This is not a singular manifestation, as T.D. Jakes likes to tell people, which is modalism. By the way, T.D. Jakes is not a believer. We know that he's not a believer because he believes in a false God. He believes in a God who, he says, manifests himself sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, and sometimes as the Spirit. Really? Maybe Matthew 3 is not in his Bible. Why do I mention the name T.D. Jakes? Because he is an extremely popular false teacher, and lots of people follow him to hell. Very charismatic, very appealing, very convincing. He's a false teacher. He's unconverted. He believes in a false God, and he is deeply committed to it. So, it is correct to say that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, but it is not correct to say that the Father is the Son, or the Son is the Spirit, or the Spirit is the Father. It is not unusual for someone to be baptized in a religious organization that rejects the deity of Jesus Christ, declaring him to be the Son of God, but not God, or the man who became a God rather than God who became man. It's a false God. 
It's not the God of the Trinity. It's not the God of the Bible. Some groups think of the Holy Spirit as a force and refer to him as it. It's not unusual to hear someone confuse the members of the Trinity and begin praying to the Father and then soon slip into thanking him for dying on the cross. Three persons, one God. Since baptism symbolizes regeneration, this means a proper view of each of the three persons of the Godhead. So what are God the Father's roles in salvation? Predestination, foreknowledge, justification, and adoption. Ephesians 1.5 says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Romans 8.29-30 say, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are the roles of the Father. He's the orchestrator, if you will. What are God the Son's roles in salvation? Redemption, justification, propitiation, reconciliation. Ephesians 1, 7-8 say, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Romans 3, 25 speaks of Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, we are reconciled to God through his son. God is the conductor, the orchestrator, the director. Jesus is the actor, if you will. He's the one who carries out the act of redemption. What are God the Spirit's roles in salvation? Conviction, regeneration, sanctification, indwelling, and preservation. John 16.8 says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. You say, but that passage is dealing with unbelievers. That's right, which we all were before we became believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there is conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment for every unbeliever. And ultimately, that immediate or initial conviction is brought about to bring about a humility and a repentance for such a disposition. Galatians 4 verse 6 says, Because you are sons, that is, by adoption, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Ephesians 4.30 says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's preservation. The Spirit seals us forever. There is no losing your salvation because you didn't earn it, you didn't gain it, you didn't choose it. The Holy Spirit seals it for you because God the Father predestined it to happen. Jesus caused it to happen. Titus 3, verse 5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of generation and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He's doing that work in us through the reading and the teaching and the memorization and the meditation upon His Word. See, He is the agent. God the Father, the Director, Jesus the actor, and the Holy Spirit the agent. And it's a beautiful, harmonious, never interrupted unity. Each fulfilling his own role. You say, why did you go into all that? Well, because Jesus chose the words. We are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you need to know who those persons are. And you need to know that they are one God three persons. They are not personalities. That is heresy. There is a massive difference between a personality and a person. Three persons, one God. And you and I need to have a proper view of God and His work. There are cases of people being baptized who were not saved in the Bible and cases of people being saved who were not baptized. It's a rarity, but it happens. Some would say, well, look at Acts 2.38. Doesn't Peter say you're to be baptized in the name of Jesus? Actually, what the text says is 
Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The main verb there is repent. He's saying, Repent in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a simultaneous reality. In the moment that you repent and believe in the gospel, you receive the Holy Spirit. The question thereafter is not whether or not you get him again or get more of him. You always have all of him. The issue is, will you walk in fullness of the Holy Spirit? Will you walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit? Throughout Acts and everywhere else in Scripture, salvation accompanies repentance and baptism follows. Baptism doesn't save you. I think you know that. Peter's point is that a person who repents and receives forgiveness for his sins is to be obedient in baptism. Further in verse 19, uh, we already mentioned this, but it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, te teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. See, if we as a local church, and we are as a local church, commanded and to be involved in discipling the nations, why would we do that? Because we know from Scripture that God will save some out of every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And therefore, we can go forth with confidence that He will save some. This is the ministry of reconciliation. Friends, this is what the church trains for. This is why we do everything we do. And I mean everything, no matter what it is. Whether it's a monthly lunch together, or you hear a testimony from someone, or it's someone teaching, or someone counseling, or someone going through discipleship, someone participating in a family group. No matter what it is, it is intended to be preparatory for missions. It's intended to be preparatory for evangelism. We must not forget that. We must never forget this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. Obviously, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about those who died to self, those who died to unrighteousness. Christ died for them all. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf, those for whom he died. Further, in verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The Word of God is exactly enough for legitimate reconciliation. That's the key term. It's reconciliation, creating a handshake, really being used of God that the handshake would be created, that the God-man, Jesus Christ, being the only mediator between God and men, would be He whom you display in your life through discipleship, through a willingness to train others, to be humble enough to say, follow me and imitate me. To be faithful enough to be imitable. To be willing to follow others and imitate them. The only way that can possibly happen is if we can be certain that we have been given the certain ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of God's word. If we are to do this with all nations, where does, it, where does this obedience begin? It starts with you and those you're discipling in your local church, which of course starts with being discipled by someone in your local church. There's no such thing as Christianity without discipleship. It's, it's a foreign statement in our culture, I know, to say something like that, but the reason for that is that the culture is so grossly diverted from biblical truth. People think that they've got something going on between Jesus and self, and it's not biblical Christianity. Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Did you notice evangelists in there? And what's their role? 
According to this text, their role is not primarily to evangelize. Their role is primarily to train other people to be evangelists. When's the last time you met someone who was passionately committed to sitting under the leadership of the elders in their local church, committed to evangelism, primarily meaning that they were teaching others in the local church to evangelize? That person is a rarity in our culture. We need some of you. This local body needs some of you to say, I'll be the evangelist. I believe God's calling me to do that work. And I not only will go out on the streets and share with people at abortion clinics and other places where unbelievable sin is going on, I won't only be that person in the workplace, I will train people within the local church to go with me and do that. In fact, I'll go on a short-term mission trip just to gear up. If I can't do that, I'll give money to others as they go and do that. Titus 2, 3 through 8 is the the picture-perfect text on discipleship, that men would disciple younger men, that women would disciple younger women. And what Paul is calling Titus here to do is to teach them that they would teach others. Have you noticed that about that text? He says, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. There's the need for women not only to give that example, but to actually teach younger women to be that woman. Who's got credibility to do that? The woman that's doing it. Discipleship leads to evangelism. No discipleship, no evangelism. Not biblical evangelism. I knew a man some time ago who said that he was passionately committed to evangelism. He had bought his bullhorn, and he had made the path, figured out where he was going to go, but he was not committed to a local church. So I asked him, what are you evangelizing people unto? Well, Jesus No, you're not. Jesus said, make disciples of all nations. And that's got to start with the local church. You don't just wander around and tell people about the Lord. It's not evangelism. I don't know what to call it. It might be called a number of things legitimately, but it's not evangelism. Discipleship is what leads to evangelism. Point number four, discipleship motivated by Christ's forever presence. That's motivating. Discipleship motivated by Christ's forever presence. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm not leaving you. I'm with you. I'm loyal to you. You could call this discipleship motivated by eternal loyalty, the eternal divine loyalty. When Jesus saves you, He keeps you. You keep Him because He keeps you. For the believer, this would apply until the end of his life, but for the church, the phrase, the end of the age, refers to the end of the earthly era of the church when Christ returns. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 8 speaks of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3 verse 12 says, not that I've already obtained to it, speaking of the resurrection, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that, listen, I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. You know, in Philippians 1 verse 6, he says what? He who began a work will complete it. He doesn't say it's dependent upon you. If he began the work, he'll complete it. You say, but I know lots of people who appeared to be saved and that work wasn't completed. They weren't saved. It's that simple. And yet we say things like, I don't know if he's a Christian, that's between him and the Lord. I don't know. I think it's between Paul and you and me and every other Christian. But not if we're not committed to discipleship within the church because there's no discernment. Anybody can think or say anything they want. And this in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. 
I've studied this Greek term, and it means imperishable. It can't perish. It's undefiled. It can't fade away. It will never change. It's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It doesn't hinge on your performance. This is amazing. And yet in some places you'll go and you'll sit in a pew and somebody will say, just ask Jesus into your heart. That's all you need. And it's a diversion from this. Jude 1, 24, listen to this. This is beautiful. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Amen. Ephesians 3.17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, not because you asked him there, because there's no command to do that, but it does happen. He enters in. He's Lord. He does what he wants. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Next time you're having a bad day, read that. That is what Christ has predestined you for, and he will bring it to pass. John 14, 25, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's how Jesus is with you. The third person of the Trinity indwells you. Literally, God. Not a force, not an it, not a ghost, not an angel. Not some personality. God, the creator of the universe, indwells you and he secures you, and he sanctifies you, and he gives you strength, and he gives you hope, and he leads you to persevere. A few questions, and we'll finish. Number one, you won't be surprised by these questions. Are you demonstrating obedience and worship in discipleship? Are your discipleship relationships leading to pure obedience and more vibrant worship. It's got to be done through discipleship. It's God's agenda. Number two, are you obeying the command of discipleship under the authority of Jesus? In other words, is it a matter of obedience to you that the one who holds all authority has commanded you to make disciples? Does that matter to you? I, I know it does. I know that that matters in our church. I know that that is of preeminent importance in our church. That a substantially large percentage of the people in our church are genuinely committed to making disciples of all nations, starting with those right here in Redlands. Kaipa, Loma Linda, San Bernardino, Highland, Moreno Valley. Where next? Number three, are you involved in discipleship that rightly explains the Trinity and attempts to reach the nations? Is that your prayer? Is that your theology? Do you believe what the Bible says about God the Father's role in salvation and God the Son's role in salvation and God the Spirit's role in salvation? Or do you believe a man-made system that just feels better because that can't make sense. Number four, is your discipleship motivated by Christ's forever presence with you? Is that what motivates you to pour into other people's lives? You remember, he's with me. He promised, lo, behold, I'm with you even unto the end of the age, even if there's a debate about what that phrase means, at least it's going to carry me through the end of my life. Two women in our church 
have said, I will disciple other nations. And in my mind, that is phenomenal. And you as a local church have said, we will support them. Maybe you can't go this year, but I suspect that many of you are praying about going next year. And that the Lord is currently moving on your heart to ask the question, how can I be faithfully involved in obeying what we rightly refer to as the Great Commission? You see that it's not about getting people to make decisions. It's not in that text. It's not in any text. We just went through that one. You saw that it's not there. What is there? Make disciples. That's the command. That's the imperative. That's what Christians do. That's what Christian churches do. They make disciples. They make disciples of all nations. They baptize them rightly, not necessarily with the same exact word-for-word verbiage, but in the right spirit, meaning a Trinitarian biblical God who is three persons, one God. That's what they do. Oh, and with that, we don't want to forget this. In that discipleship, they teach those they're discipling to obey some of his commands, right? No. In biblical discipleship, we teach them to obey every command. That's the mark of a person who's redeemed. That's the mark of a person who is a member of the body of Christ. Father, what amazing kindness you have shown to us that you would give your only son for sinners such as us. We inadequately but genuinely express our thanks to you. And even now, as we close our service, we want you to be exalted. We want Jesus to be exalted. We want to be reminded of the fact that the role of the Holy Spirit is to move us to exalt Jesus. That He who is good has in His kindness caused us to be born again. And we ask all these things in His name. Amen.